is Friday, September 16th, 2022. Welcome to It's a Packed Life podcast. Today I have brought Corey back. Um, Why are you here, Corey? <laughs> uh, we're here because we're going to do some uh, conversations about uh, mental health. Yeah, I thought you were going to be like, because I want to save my marriage. <laughs> I was going to say because I was bribed, but you know, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> How were you bribed, Corey? What are you looking at here today? We got Pepperidge Farm cookies, some cinnamon oh, bears. Yeah, no. I- oh, that's not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he was bribed. We'll just leave that for the audience to determine how to translate that if it's not the food in front of you. <laughs> listen. Listen. Yes, I'm here. I'm listening. So next weekend, 19 years. Crazy, huh? So crazy, but awesome. We will have been married 19 years. What day next week? I don't even know. It's like on the weekend though, right? Saturday. Saturday? Next Saturday. It's a week from tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We got married. Yes, we did. Because you said yes. <laughs> why'd you ask? Because I love you. <laughs> but at the time, why'd you ask? <laughs> <laughs> I want to have sex with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a Mormon answer. I know. (laughs) All right. Um, Welcome to the podcast. It's a packed life. Let's get a little bit inappropriately appropriate. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So um, I wanted to do another episode with you on the podcast, partly because I've been struggling with my depression and you are always a bomb for that partly because doing some of the editing on some of the other episodes has been a little hard for me while I'm in the midst of depression and I wanted to be excited about this project still because it's important to me and also because as we're moving into October so I know May is like mental health awareness month but what a lot of people don't know is that october is actually depression awareness month i bet you didn't know that i didn't actually it's mental health education month and it's also an awareness month around um depression and that is something that plays a big role in my life which means that it has then played a role in your life being married to me but then also um it's shown up as a symptom of some of the other mental health stuff that came up because of your years in the military yes it did it's not your predominant diagnosis which is ptsd for those who don't know what ptsd is post-traumatic stress disorder disorder yeah I was going to say syndrome, but that would be PTSS. (laughs) And I thought it would be kind of good segue into the interviews that I've been having that are coming up and moving forward in the next few weeks because they are around mental health and the ways that people handle mental health and then moving into other ways that people are um, processing and dealing with ways to not have to deal with depression and different things i don't know if that makes any sense they did okay cool kind of a heavy topic and it might, can be a very heavy topic might feel a little overwhelming sometimes um but i think it's important so this is the, so here's one of the questions because as we were just saying we've been married for 19 years now And, um, my depression showed up pretty early in our marriage with, after our first miscarriage, which I got pregnant pretty much on the honeymoon. I don't know if it was the honeymoon or right after. Well, it wouldn't have been the honeymoon. No. (laughs) Do we talk about that? No. All right, cool. That's not this conversation. All right, (laughs) fine. Anyway, I got pregnant fairly quickly after we got married. 
And then I miscarried. Um, I think it was right around six or seven weeks the first time. Yeah. Then we were pregnant with Rory and I was basically on bed rest trying to keep him inside me from miscarrying from 23 weeks on. And then I miscarried again with a baby after him, closer to the 12 week mark. Um, But anyway, that first time postpartum depression still showed up with the miscarriage along with grief. And it really changed the dynamics of what we were dealing with in our relationship pretty quickly. Yeah, it did. It really shifted things. That's not something that you can really prepare for, especially when it's not a common topic. No, especially how I grew up. It's not anything my family ever talked about. Despite the fact that your family deals with depression. Almost all of them do in one way or the other. Yeah. You know, and yet nobody is that unspoken thing that you don't speak about. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask, don't tell, but we're not talking about gays in the military. No. Yeah. So that was how my family treated it. Let's talk about that part of, because in Mormonism, uh, and I was talking with my cousin Mike today, and that episode will show up here in a couple of weeks, but talking about how in inside of Mormonism, when you have depression, it is usually, you're told that the reason you're dealing with depression is because of the influence of Satan and that there are things that you are not doing to take care of yourself, to bring you closer to God. Because if you are feeling the presence of God in your life, and if you're, you know, living your life in a spiritually healthy way, you're not going to be sad or depressed or dealing with these things, which is total bullshit. (laughs) 100% bullshit. But it is one more way that like they can take people and say, if you're not feeling this happiness all the time, then you're not living according to the spirit and you need to be doing more. And it's one more way to keep you invested into. Yeah. That's that whole guilt shame cycle. They, yeah. They apply to you. And it is a bitch. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but that's first couple of years was challenging for, I know for me, and I know it was for you for sure. Just well, I mean, the figuring fir- out what you're going through, and you're, we're first married too. And on top of that, like because we grew up Mormon, obviously we got married really fast because, as you said, in order to have sex, <laughs> we needed to be married. <laughs> long relationship, long engagements are not encouraged. Um, and. So we got married quickly, which means like, and I do think that we knew each other better than a lot of people who get married fast, just because when you were deployed, we were really good about writing to each other and really opening communication. And yes, when you don't have someone sitting right in front of you, there's a safety that exists because you're not looking at their immediate reaction. Yeah. If you got a, you get a wall basically. And and so you don't have. Fear of like yeah rejection and or, stuff. you yeah. can just let it out. And you just say kind of everything, and plus that's kind of how started, I am. That's how we started talking. Too. Yeah, and it's truly how I am is to just like no filter. <laughs> no. When when I feel safe with a person, there's no filter, and with you, I've never had a filter, which lifted your filter with me because. When someone opens themselves to you that way, it provides an opportunity for you to be completely open with them as well. Yep. Yeah, because I'm normally not. Which, let's be honest, that <laughs> that shocked the shit out of me when I figured that out. <laughs> because I thought you were just that open and brazen and bold with everybody. Just you, baby. Just me, baby. <laughs> Which, thank you for that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, one of the, like, I went into therapy when we lost the baby and was dealing with my side of the grief. And you seemed fine, but I really think that it affected you in a lot of ways that you didn't even give yourself permission to feel at the time. 
No, I didn't. Because I grew up, you don't allow it to. And people talk about how with the female, you know, you're the one that's lost the baby. And there's a lot of conversation around how that affects the woman, but it doesn't, we don't really talk about how it affects the male. And a lot of that is just watching your spouse and feeling helpless around it. But also like you lost your baby too. I think the, the emotion of loss is definitely less because there's not the chemical changes going on with that. The hormone changes that the woman is dealing with. Well, on the law, the pregnancy to start with, and then the loss, it goes both ways. But I think what you, you hit on a lot is men we're always told we fix things we protect people we you know this is the mentality of our culture so when a woman loses a child in pregnancy we feel helpless there's nothing you could do let's let's take ownership of it protect it let's take ownership of it say i i felt helpless like i i couldn't do anything to to help make you feel better you know like i always wanted to and we later got really good at or gotten better at saying i'm not supposed to fix this i just need to talk to you you know like just be here for me i don't need you to fix it i just need you to be here that's always most of the time that is my first reaction is to fix something yeah and so i and i with the miscarriages you can't and even with depression in general you you can you can just be there there was this huge component of that too that was around the fact that in mormonism the role of the female is to um have the babies and a lot of your self-worth is projected onto um the value that comes from your womb and as a mother yeah and as a mother and when my womb basically killed my baby and like rejected that there was a huge devastation which is it's kind of interesting because i never wanted to be a mom growing up i was not one of those little girls who played with baby dolls or wanted to be a mommy or thought about being a mom i wasn't one of those people who had like planned out my wedding or any of those things. And a lot of it was because in our home, my mother was uh, the abuser. And we do have to talk about that to make sense of all this. But like, there was a lot of anger and rage and things that showed up with my mom's emotions and things around um the babies, she would treat the babies really well. And she loved on the babies. And she would always tell my dad, like, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to leave you and the older kids because they're already ruined. And I'm going to take the younger kids and save them or whatever. And being the third child, I was always one of the older kids, which means I was always being rejected. And so the definition of a mother in my mind was someone who could easily reject you. And there was a lot of pain and hurt around that for me, around motherhood. And so I did not grow up wanting to be a mom because to me, being a mom meant causing pain to someone. And I hadn't been in therapy. Obviously, as a little kid, you don't process that. Right. You know, but also it had never occurred to me that when I decided, if I decided to have children, that that might not be something that could just happen. (laughs) <laughs> right your mom had 13 kids and yours had eight mm-hmm. so the thought that there could possibly be any like infertility issues or any of that was like so far away from my realm of and all right and i mean i already had older sisters that had kids and i had younger sister, younger sister that had kids so it was never something that and i had two siblings that had had children when we got married wait Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was just not so. And my friends that had gotten married, like nobody I knew was dealing with infertility issues at that point in time. Right. That's not to say that later over time, I didn't have friends and people that then dealt with it. 
And the more I got comfortable with talking about the fact that we dealt with it, then it came out more with other it people. It came out more with other people. Because yeah. it doesn't feel safe. It did not feel safe to talk about that inside of a culture where the value of the female was put on her motherhood. Yeah. And I remember Even we. not getting pregnant isn't always the female's fault. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and we lived in a ward. Um, oh, and that's a congregation for those who don't know how Mormons define yeah. that. We lived inside of a ward that was very young. It was all new starter homes and family homes. Mm-hmm. The first year, there was over 32 baby blessings. Yeah. That year that we lived there. And I had lost a baby. And here we're at church on Sundays and people are like, don't drink the water. You'll get pregnant. And I would come home from church and I would just bawl. And be like, give me the water. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard. It was hard to be around that many people having babies and everybody talking about having kids and and feeling like somehow I was a failure because my body was not um, cooperating with quote unquote God's plan. Yeah. So it took us a couple of years. To get pregnant with Rory. And then again, I was on bed rest and Rory was a preemie. And then I dealt with postpartum after Rory. And then when I got pregnant again after and then lost that baby and dealt with postpartum. And the doctor said, um, when you have postpartum depression, there's not always a guarantee that you'll have it again. But if you've had it and you've had it again, then it will show up again. And each time, statistically, it shows up worse. And I remember you were getting ready to deploy. I think Rory was around two, maybe three. You were deploying. I bought tickets for us to go to a um, Washington football game. and Because that was your team mm-hmm. before they were called the Commanders. But anyway, a Washington, D.C. football game. And I got us tickets so that we could go and have a date and have like a special experience before you deployed. And we went to the game and had a good time with that and things. And then we had a layover in the Chicago airport. Right. And we were standing along some glass railing, looking over a stairwell or something. That's all. This is what I remember. We were like on a side, like. I don't remember where we were at. I just remember looking down at the stairs and we were standing there talking to each other. And I felt so much fear and trepidation around what I was going to suggest. And that was that we just don't do this again, that it was going to be too hard and let's not have any more kids. Let's not put my body through this again. Let's not put, because I had already been hospitalized. Yep. I was hospitalized after that second loss where I was ready to kill myself. I was ready to no longer be alive on this planet. I had a plan in place and I called you at work and I, I told you either you come home right now and take me to the hospital or I won't be here when you get back. And we took me, you came, you came home and took me into the hospital. And um, that was a, that's a whole other conversation around the messed upness of mental health stuff, whatever. But in asking for that help, I ended up having your support, letting you became aware of just how dark it was. And I did end up getting the psychiatric and the therapeutic help that I needed at the time. So, yeah, I mean, and granted, I think it could have worked differently than taking to the hospital, but you asking for the help was huge, huge. I mean, I mean, I can't even imagine because I have never been in that dark of a place. I can't imagine the courage it took to see one where you're at and to recognize how desperate you were. Well, and I'll be honest, if at that point in time, I had not had two uncles that had died by suicide and had not seen the ripple effect of the pain that went out from, this is why I call it a ripple effect. Because you think about if you toss a pebble into the lake and it starts out with a small little plunk, and then you watch those ripples go out, they can move out into full on waves. Mm -hmm. They can get bigger. 
I watched first my uncle Larry, when he committed suicide, I was 13 years old. He didn't have any children, but I saw how it affected me as a niece and all of my cousins, my siblings, his siblings. And then even over the years, years later, running into people that randomly had known him and the effect and the impact and the hurt that his death had caused. And then 10 years later, my uncle Charlie committed um, having also died by suicide. They've changed the phraseology around that. And I try really hard to honor that. I do not like the phrase committed suicide because that puts the honest on the person instead of understanding that it is a disease and that they died because of the disease that they have. So he died by suicide and he died by suicide when I was 23, which was about uh, two and a half years before we met. Anyway, when, so when it got to that point, it was actually knowing the impact that my pain that I was feeling was going to ripple out into all of, into you, into my child who was around two at the time, into my parents, my siblings and friends and people that I probably had no comprehension of the impact that it would have at that point in time. It wasn't for myself that I stopped. It was because of, and and the main people were you and Rory. And that's why I called you. I am ever grateful that you did. Same. And I will tell you that over the years, as we have grown and gone through the experiences that we have gone through, when PTSD showed up in your life and you started dealing with um, your own depression and your own mental health issues. The helplessness that you must have felt in that moment just almost feels crippling because I know how helpless I felt watching you dealing with what you were going through and you hadn't even spiraled down to that dark of a place. Yeah. Um, I don't have the words to describe how that felt watching you go through that. I don't. I mean, even at the time, it was so overwhelming. I was just completely numb. Yeah. I mean, my body was and my mind was past being able to process the feelings of it. And I just dealt with the situation. I cannot fathom what it must have been like, like trying to like help a two-year-old can understand why mom was in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that part wasn't as bad because you can see mommy's sick and the doctors have to keep, you know, she has to be with the doctors. Is that how you handle it? Yes. We've never talked about this part of it, actually, so that because was, it's been too raw for me. That was kind of easy, but as a child, they still don't understand why mom can't come home. Okay, so mom's sick, but why isn't she coming home? Well, let's find the doctors are taking care of her, but why isn't she coming home? Yeah. And that part, and luckily it was only three nights. Right. Know? So it wasn't. Which is ridiculous. It is. They shouldn't have. <laughs> and actually, it, but... later, the psychiatrist I had said if he had been the one that was on call, that he would not have released me. Yeah. But it was worse in the hospital. It, it was so bad in that hospital situation that I was like, I can handle my life over this. <laughs> right. Which is just, ridiculous. I mean, that talks but... about how broken the mental health system is yeah. in our country. But But at that point, too, though, I was fully locked in on what was going on like before i i don't know if it was just i was blind or you hit it really well or a combination of both had it was both because i was telling you i was struggling but at the same time there's a difference between saying i'm really struggling and me saying i want to die right to the point where i'm gonna kill myself if you don't get me some help so we we got you into what three different therapists or psychiatrists He's, before we found the one that no it was he was the psychiatrist assigned to me it was therapist therapist yeah we tried three different ones before we landed God, on the one I don't remember that one in Ogden holy shit that was miserable we didn't even stay Mm-mm. just getting in the office was like holy shit they felt 
And then saying, well, we're going to cancel this appointment. Well, we're going to charge you for it. We didn't even see anybody. The appointment was made today and we're not even going to see anybody. And you're going to try to charge us for not having a 24-hour cancellation. When it was made the same day, yeah. Yeah, that would. And then the lady I saw after that. Anyway, (laughs) I landed with an amazing therapist a couple of months out. Yeah. Who I was with her for like six years or something. Like, no, no, I was seeing um, the other one first for a while. We both saw a husband and wife. Yeah. And then I went to Diane. Yep. I forgot about that. But anyway, I saw her for about a year and then she changed. um, She went to work for the VA and couldn't take private clients and then i ended up with the one that i saw for the next six years till we left utah Mm -hmm. which i had a couple of really good experiences after some really shitty ones so here's the thing if you're seeing a therapist and you're not getting what you need out of it fire them let them go move on because there are therapists out there that you will connect with that can give you what you need from the situations that you're in yes because Therapists, you have to be able to connect, like yeah. like yes. a friend. And if you can't have that kind of connection, they're not going to do what you need. Well, you're not going to trust them. Right. With, you're with, not going to get out of it what you need. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say they're not qualified, they're not good at their job. It's just saying that you don't have Not every therapist is for every person. Exactly. And a healthy, well-trained therapist is not going to be upset if you fire them. Right. And my... I had my second therapist was in a military assigned therapist. And I just, I couldn't connect with her, you know, and, and she seemed like a nice lady and stuff. And I, because it was the military, I wanted to transfer, but they wouldn't let me transfer until my therapist said I could transfer. So I actually had to go in and tell her, which was really uncomfortable for me because I don't like that kind of right. confrontation. And the lady this was is like, not working. And I and I said that, and she goes, yeah, I could tell something was not going right. You weren't, you know, and she goes, yeah, here, who do you want? You know, and so she, it, it didn't even phase her. She'd already saw it coming, like, or knew something had to happen, and it was just, she was like, Because yeah. a good therapist doesn't bring their ego into it. Yeah. So. And I, and I think it also helped in her situation. She got paid the same no matter what. <laughs> well, honestly, yeah. though, I've I've fired several therapists over the years. And I've only had one. Yeah. And it it was the one. It was the one right after all that. But anyway. So having been dealing with my stuff. When your stuff showed up. I don't know. Did that make it easier when I sat you down and was like, dude, you got to get into some therapy. (laughs) Uh, at first I bought it. Of course you did. Because, you know, well, one, there's still that stigmatism you grow up with. And in the military. I was just going to say. There is a stigmatism. There even was, though they've gotten. There was at the time. Yeah, but they were getting better. And I'm sure they're uh, continuing to get better. But they were getting better. In fact, they were pushing more to get people in, you know. And prior to that, though, if you went into someone and had had the diagnosis of PTSD or depression or whatever, they could kick you out. Yeah. They had been kicking out people. And then not giving them the support and help. And so you were like really afraid of that. And I was just like, look, I would rather you get kicked out of the military than for our family to continue to have to deal with this anger and shit that's showing up. One of the things that really helped me was um, a guy I worked with, a friend of mine, he went in for a different reason. Um, to get help. Um, and so that helped me because he was talking to me about it. You know, him and I talked a lot um, between shift changes. Um, but he was telling me about the psychiatrist and how the guy was funny and kind of a crazy guy, you know, but anyhow, so it just made it easier because I'm, I'm looking at this guy that you had respect for right that i, I liked that and knew seemed it was like a tough guy he was like a typical military mm-hmm. and so i was like well then if he can do it and there's nothing coming from it then i can do it and 
it still took me a little while. I think that was after you had pushed for me for a while to go in. I made the appointment and took you in. Do you remember that? Mm-mm. Oh, yeah, I do. I made the appointment. I do remember. I took it, which actually, so on the bases in the Air Force, they have, as part of the family readiness program, and I was a key spouse at the time, which is why I knew about these programs and things. A key spouse is someone who volunteers to help make sure that the spouses of those who are deployed are cared for and know the programs available to them. And I would have meetings with the commander of the squadron and be able to sit down with him to let him know, you know, if there were families and people in need of any more help or support or intervention. And then I had monthly meetings of training so that I could show up and be there for it. And the reason I volunteered for that is because no one was doing it. And I had been through a couple of deployments without any support. And I was like, this is bullshit. And so I stepped up and I did that for about six years off and on yep. till I was burnt out and was like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, anyway, as part of that family readiness program, they bring a therapist onto the base and they are there on a rotation. I think they're there for about three months. They don't report to anyone the information that they glean or whatever. It's just set up for anyone who is in the military or their families to be able to come in and talk to them and to have them as a resource. And I had talked to the person who was there at that point in time, and they suggested to me that I make the appointment and take you in and go into the first session and sit down with a therapist and say, as the spouse, this is what I'm seeing. And these are the problems that I'm seeing. And this is what needs to be addressed. And that's what I did. And you were super uncomfortable with that whole situation. But then I did all that. And then I stepped back. Yeah. Because it was critical at that point. We would not have made it. You were starting to be so angry. Like, and you are not an angry person. But after there had been an, a, I don't know if we need to talk about what happened. It wasn't even a deployment. A plane had hit a mountain and you had had to go and you were part of the investigative yeah. crew that went and had to mark all the pieces and parts and there were body anyway it was just you were it changed you it altered you and then the deployment after that we had you had seen some therapy and then the deployment after that you did some volunteer work where you helped the hospital at the hospital moving people from like the medevac medevac to the hospital and that really changed things because you saw a lot of things that Nobody helped you process what you were dealing with. And you're not the kind of person who will naturally just process the shit you're dealing with. You bury it. I do. I lock it away. I ignore it. Because it's how you survived in the family I had growing up. Is you don't show weakness because they literally would pounce on it. And so, well, and we also grew up in a culture where men are not, and then you're in the military culture, men are not supposed to show weakness around those things yeah we're not allowed. i mean you're supposed to be a war machine like you're not supposed to be affected by mm, yeah people being wounded or it's not your wound what's your problem it's not your arm yeah it's not your body part suck it up buttercup yeah also didn't help that that was the deployment that um i uh well any other was a uh Situation on base with a, a jet that. That was the Russian MiG, right? One of my guys got injured, but it came really close to probably killing two of us. Yeah. And so. You barely sweat. Plus, that was the one where you were walking towards the chow hall and you'd forgotten your book and you turned around to get it and it and the mortar hit the entryway where you would have been. Yeah. It was a lot of things. Yeah, a lot of things. Plus, you'd been on several deployments at this point in time. You'd been like people have been trying to kill you for years at this point in time. <laughs> I mean, you know, we don't talk about it that way, but really, yeah, that's what it is. You're living in this constant. You know, and the the interesting thing is, is like for me, yes, being on high alert 
when you're deployed all the time and knowing that that's there really wasn't my biggest issue with my PTSD. I mean, it plays a huge part. Don't get me wrong. But it's the helplessness. It was the helplessness because I, I was an aircraft mechanic and we couldn't do anything about it. We just, you had to kind of hunker in your office or whatever and let it go by and wait until you had to go do your job and go do your job where you would sit and listen to the guys that would go the and guys kick at, down doors. The or... guys at the gate in full on, you know, battles, 100, 200 yards away from where you're setting. So there's this deep sense of helplessness. And you're not supposed to go help them. You know, and that's all of us. And I think inst- instant um, instincts want to go, at least mine. I wanted to go. I wanted to run over there, but you couldn't. And so we would just. And I always worked nights and I would stand at the end of the. um, um tarmac or the parking ramp for where our, our hangar was at and then in, in the middle of the night and just listen to the firefights go on that were going on 200 yards from me maybe a little further but not i mean literally not that far i mean you're hearing everything and you're not allowed to go do anything and you can't do it and you just stand there and listen to it because that's all you can do is kind of like have that vigil for them who are fighting to keep people out from killing you. Make sure you do your job so that the planes can go do their job to help mitigate. Another thing I think on the other side that helped was that I got into playing on my days off. I got into playing poker. They would have these little Texas Hold'em tournaments three times a day on two different days of the week. And I would go play those. I'd go play all three tournaments in the day I was off. And I got to talk to the army um, and a few Marines, mostly the army guys. And, you know, they'd always say, what you do? And I was like, oh, I'm just an aircraft mechanic. I don't really do anything important. And they're like, holy shit, dude, your guys is that saved our ass at such and such. And, man, we love it when we can call those guys in. They they always, you know, right. and, you know, so it, was, it gave me a different set of, sense of, well, I am accomplishing something. Right. It just wasn't a direct visual. like. Well, and it's not something that shows up on the news. It's not something you get any kudos for. In fact... Being an egress mechanic, which you worked on the ejection seats, the explosives on the ejection seats specifically, and making sure that if any if everything else fails, the very last thing that can never fail is that ejection seat to save the pilot's life, right? Yeah. But say a pilot does have to eject, you guys didn't even get the credit for the part you did. It went to life support. Life support. <laughs> and not to say that they don't have a role as well, but like they were the ones that would get the thank you and the kudos. Yeah. Never mind the fact that even though they packed the the parachute, parachute, the parachute does jack shit all if the ejection seat doesn't work. Yep. And the pilots don't come and thank the egress guys the way that they do the life support guys, and that that's hard to sit back sometimes and. Yeah. And feel like, well, is anything I do worth anything? Even though you kind of know it is, but without anybody saying, hey, thanks, I appreciate what you did. Yeah. It makes you feel pretty insignificant. And it was, I guess, also hard because a lot of times, and people don't, I don't know, maybe people do, but when a, a pilot has issues with a plane, there's not always a lot of chance for them to get out. I mean, it is really a, a last resort. Yeah. So my first incident with a plane going down, we lost four pilots. It was a it was a bomber. It was four pilots, and they all died because it literally there was it was a blink of an eye. How that accident? There's nothing you can do. And so you know, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, they couldn't have done anything to eject. Um, they couldn't even react anyhow. But that's so we lost four pilots, and that was devastating. Not just to the base because it went, it was our vice wing commander but um but to me and the guys in the shop because you know that was supposed to be our job we were supposed to save them never mind that had nothing to do with your stuff but because life was lost yeah and then you took it very personal my next two experiences were almost the same thing uh we had mid-air collision well actually one of the pilots did survive on that one so it was kind of like a mixed bag you had one that got killed and one that made it and then it wasn't until um, we had that guy, that pilot eject over Baghdad mm. and he came back fine, you know, no injuries, you know, 
and they they had to send him home. But I mean, he was he walked off the the helicopter from when the um, that was during our engagement, right? Yeah, when the guys picked him up. So, I mean, he had nothing wrong with him. He was. I got an email saying, "I won't be able to be in contact for a while. Watch the news." Yeah, <laughs> that was scary because I had zero military experience yeah. at this point in time. Yeah, we weren't. But um, and so I saw you know, that a pilot had lived and it was, there was this sense of pride that I had knowing that the job that you did had made it possible for this man to walk away from that. And that was the moment that I was like, wow, this, what he's doing really, really, really truly matters. And I also recognized at that point in time that I needed to stop watching the news unless you told me to. <laughs> and I all I needed to give myself distance from what you were doing over there, like learning how to set mental boundaries for myself. And that was hard for me to tell you. If you really need to talk about this, I'm here for you. But otherwise, I can't handle hearing the day to day of this because it's too much for me while you're gone. Yeah. Because my anxiety will just take over my brain spirals. And I didn't even know or understand how deeply true that was for myself at that point in time. Which knowing what we know now about the panic disorder and everything that I ended up with, like, that was so smart of me. It was very smart of you. But you, ever since I've known you, you've been very good at setting boundaries. And so it didn't surprise me that you did that. And it's Here's still a, funny it, thing is. Did it, it make it hard for you? Only like that. And like when you first said it, it was kind of like. I almost, I almost I, well, I was a little hurt, but and I thought about it and I was like, oh, I know why. And as soon as I realized what was going on, that went away, you know, just because we talked about everything. Right. And I just realized, you know, in order for you to find that peace. To be okay, just you, in the day. You didn't need day. to. You didn't want to hear it, and I was, and I, and I realized that was fine. In fact, I actually realized it was probably better. And it, <laughs> it was kind of interesting because I mean, I still told her like the day to day stuff, but just not anything else. I just told her the little quirks of the job, you know. Like, we just left the the battle aspect yeah. and the amount of times that, like, I knew the base was under attack. Like you would tell me, yeah, the base was under attack. And when something big happened, like when you turned around for that book and it could have ended up being your wife, if you hadn't turned around to go get that book, we talked about that. Right. And when the MIG. I never told you that I was telling your brothers that, and you were like, what? I never heard this. Is like, that what happened? It I became don't... a little phrase. If she overheard me telling somebody else, she goes, I've never heard this. And I'm like, did you? <laughs> Didn't want to hear this, you know. The Meg you did tell me about. I though. did tell you about that because I knew that it was going to get back to you because you were well, a key spouse at the time. Well, and what was funny is it took months before the commander finally called me and said there was an incident on the base. And I was like, oh, shit. Thinking, what the hell? There and he's like, else. this. And he starts talking about it. I was like, oh, you mean the Meg? And he's like, all right, fine. Tell me what you know. <laughs> Because you were also our as a couple, and because we were at Hill Air Force Base for 12 base, 12 years, we became known as a couple who, if there was a question on what was going on or when the group was coming home or whatever, people would the commander and people would come to me for information because we they knew that we communicated and not in any way that we we built codes before you left. Yeah. So that we never broke, what was that called? OPSEC. OPSEC. We never broke OPSEC. We operational never, security. We never made it so that he was ever in any danger. If someone I had, never said dates. Yeah. And I never said places. No, we always. Until I was out of country. We always picked different. a date or a time or something that had nothing to do with anything else. And then we had a code around that that we could communicate around so that. Yeah. We knew what was going on and I knew when to expect you home and those kinds of things without ever breaching OPSEC. Yeah. I mean, but the MIG was different. We we just straight talked about that because that didn't have anything to do with me leaving or coming. No, and it was not an operational security yeah. thing at all. It was just. But um, so a couple of things. And the like MIG that. is a Russian. 
It's the Russian. That's what that Russian called the fighter jets is yeah. MIG. It's M I G. I don't know what it stands for in Russian, but that's, I don't know. but they they work. They label them. Like a current MIG is MIG twenty nine, but uh, that was a MIG twenty one. They wanted you to take the ejection seat out of that plane, even though you didn't speak Russian. You'd never worked on those planes. You didn't have a you know an I book or I and you told them no. I'm not. This is not okay. This is not okay. This is not, and finally someone came down and said you have to do this, and you were like, I want it on the record that I think this is a bad idea. And then your fast acting ended up saving lives when you were like, all of a sudden it, we, everybody move. And anyway, the seat shot off. Someone ended up with a broken arm, but nobody's heads were lost. Barely. And luckily the female who was in charge, the, I shouldn't even say female, but the person, but it was the a female, commander, yeah. the commander who had, made that call took ownership of it because that could have reflected negatively on your career. Yeah. Even though you had said, I don't think this is a good idea. This I want it on the record, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Luckily, she took responsibility. And luckily there was enough of the other NCOs around that knew because they were getting some of the same things and their jobs weren't as like dealing with explosives, but there was still chemicals and stuff that could be on that plane that we didn't know anything about because we hadn't been trained on them. And so everybody was pushing back. And some guys were doing a little work because it wasn't as bad. Like the sheet metal guys, they were doing some work, but they had been pushing back as well. And I had been talking with them and had told them how I got pretty much railroaded. ordered and railroaded into it by the command chief of the base. Um, and so they knew what the situation was. So all of the four of them but she did stood in our commander's office and said that, you know, basically, this is your fault, not ours, that this happened, not his, that it happened. And But she did take and full then she, responsibility. Or the base commander, she did, because it was her that gave the orders on the, that. The final say-so. Yeah. yeah. Well, she'd come down and told me yeah. to do it, her and the chief. And I said, you know, but. Yeah. So that was a, that whole deployment was a lot of fun. I forgot how much we packed into that one deployment. So much. So much. Back to mental health stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see what I'll kind of go into causing PS PTSD. I mean, that's just that's just scratching yeah. the surface. But, so we we still deal with mental health stuff in our family. That's not something that just goes away. Um, I the all three of us are on medication. Yeah. But we talk about how it's important that we take the medication, that we handle and deal with it. Here's the thing. When you have people who deal with mental health stuff, your DNA alters. When you have a child, they're born with that DNA. On top of that, Rory here was eight and had half of his life you were gone. Yeah. And think about as an eight-year-old how much understanding you have of time and concepts and things. You, you just don't. And here, dad's gone for six months at a time, two weeks here, four four weeks there, two months here, six months there, yeah. you know. And then there are a lot of really crappy people out there that say shitty things, even in front of children, about dad being a baby killer and random nonsense like that, that it didn't matter if I could eviscerate them after they had said that, like. Those the things, was done. yeah, the damage is done. And so even starting as a toddler, we were starting to see a lot of anxiety and issues inside of our child. And at the time, the military had no mental health care for children. Yeah. It wasn't until he was over four years old that we were able to, because before that, they'd say, well, we can do family therapy for your family. And you can take the child into it, but they're not trained in yeah, child they, therapy. They wouldn't pay for child therapy. We were at a retreat in the Tetons and we were sitting at the table and there was us and another family. And I was complaining about that and how it was so frustrating that we needed help and support around these issues with our child. And there was a lady that was at the table that was started asking questions until later that I found out that she was in charge of the uh, mental health program. I'm not sure exactly how she fit into that, but 
I don't remember if she was for the VA she or was she was the director just... of no, it wasn't the VA. It was it she was actually for one of the the military. I don't know mm-hmm. what branch it was. I don't remember. She was Air Force. Was she? Yeah, it was Air Force, but it was for um but yeah, she was a command level. Like when I say command level, like so you have your base command, but then you have each base falls under an area command, and she was part of one of the area commands. No, she worked for TRICARE. She wasn't with any branch of the military. She specifically yeah, she worked was for TRICARE. Over the area command. Right. But with she TRICARE. was with That's TRICARE. Right. That's all, all yeah. of them. But anyway, she emailed me and said, hey, we've authorized this. Go ahead and find a therapist now. And then we got Rory into play therapy, and that made a huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. Because, I mean, it, yeah, it was a good start. It was a know? really good start. So that part has changed. but. People like, and one thing I had to start saying with, with medication is that it's an injury. I've had an injury and because of that injury, my body does no longer work the way it's supposed to. So I have to have this medication to make it work right. Which was interesting because you've always been fine with me taking medication, but when it came to you, you struggled with it. I did. I did. And there has been two... Oh man, how long have I been on medication now? I don't know. Years. Eight, nine years, something like 10, 12 years? Something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Long time. But there's been two different times where I had gone off my medication for whatever for dumb reasons. Um, and dear God, it almost ended our marriage one of the times. Yeah, that first time. That I sat you down and was like, you either get back in and get back on your shit or we're done because yeah. I cannot live like this. Second time I knew I had to get on it, and it wasn't, it was. And med- it was a insurance issue. Yeah. So I mean, that was I was working hard as much as I could when that was not that long ago. Yeah, that was that, that was recent. Ago. But I mean, it changes me. I mean, I get very, very angry, angry. and, and I that is not who you control are. it. That's it's, not who you are. I just feel so. I want to reiterate here, though, that. In this, Corey has never been physically or emotionally abusive. That anger has shown up in other ways, but it has never been directed towards. I get really short. Um, you're abrupt uh, and you're snap angry. easy, but like not like when I say snap, I don't mean like I go off. I just like what is that? You know, like I I react more drastically than I should. It came close to. The first time, yeah. Being directed towards me and our child. And that's when I sat you down and said, if this doesn't get fixed, it's going to become bigger and it's going to be problematic. And I refuse to tolerate that in our home. Yeah. So I think fixed because it could have become abusive. Oh, easily. Giving enough time, I could have gone down that road because I couldn't control my anger. And I'm. And there's no shame. There is zero shame in taking medication or seeing a therapist or doing those things necessary in order to be okay. Because like any injury, you get scarring from it. Yes. You know, and whether it's physical therapy or mental therapy, it's all the same. You're just working and and making sure that part works right. Yes. You know, and the medication, uh, just like with diabetes or a headache or anything else migraines like or like, if you had high you blood pressure or a thyroid that's either hypo or hyper you just need some help to get your body in the right place and i mean if you think about it and i don't know if you look at history in any way um some of the generations that have had the worst abuse has always been within a gener- within a, a generation of a massive war I had not thought about that, but that's accurate. It is. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, you know, the boomers dealt with a lot from their fathers because they were all abusive. Well, yeah, because they were all World War II vets. You know? And not only that, but some of them went through World War One as children, and then they yeah. were in World War II. Plus, there was a Vietnam War in the middle, of, like, just after that. And so, I mean, yeah, it's the Korean War. And <laughs> there's all of those. And it, in fact, you got... 
it when, does change a person. Oh yeah. It completely changes a person. We have to be honest and understanding about the fact that trauma changes people, whether it's that you've grown up in an abusive situation or you are in a war zone or let's say um, like in my case, the sexual assault that I went through, like any type of huge trauma like that changes the way that your brain processes things. Now we do know they used to think that there was no neuroplasticity of the brain. Yeah. And that after the age of 25, your brain is formatted the way it is. And if there's a brain injury, whether it's from trauma or whatever, right. That it's just imprinted. And that's that they now know that our brains continue to adapt and to grow and to do things. And that there are therapies and different things that we can do to help rewrite the way those things are imprinted and that we can continue to have neuroplasticity and to grow and adapt and heal yeah. some of that. Now that's not to say there isn't scarring that happens and that you don't have issues, but at the same time, we're not stuck the way that they believed in the past. Right. You know, and there's still things that trigger me. Um, the way that the dirt might, when we were traveling, yeah. when we were traveling, there was a campground that we were at. It was a resort campground. So it was one of the fancier ones that we were staying at. But the way that the dirt was on the road extremely triggered you because it reminded you of one of the deployments that we were at. And we had to sit down and really talk through the fact that, look, you're now 47 years old. You're, yeah, you know, we are in Florida. We're not, I think it was Florida, wasn't it? I don't even remember it out. No, it was, um, it was not. It was either Virginia or North Carolina, right on the coast. I thought it was when we were in Florida, right before the. Was it Alabama? Oh, maybe I don't. I'm getting confused. Anyway, it doesn't really matter where oh, we yeah. were, but like we had to talk. There was a couple times it showed yeah. up anyway, but like we had to like sit down and talk through that because, especially because with COVID and things, he didn't have the therapist that you were working with, right at that point in time. Mm-hmm. We didn't because you hadn't had one right before we left because you'd been doing really well. And so you didn't have one that you were working with while we were gone. Yeah. And that, I don't know, like you're one of those people, you don't constantly need to be in therapy. Like the, with the way my brain works, I do so much better when I'm in therapy all the time, but with the way that you function, you don't need it all the time. In fact, if you're forced to have it all the time, you can get worse Yeah. because talking about random shit isn't always the best way for you to process things. I need time in between, but Yeah. And I was thinking when I was bringing up why, like when I get triggered still, the the key for me, and this is something Celeste has helped me on, some of my therapists too, is I've got to ground myself and realize that, okay, this may be a trigger from an old memory, but that's not where I'm at. I'm, for instance, this was a realization I had this morning. The, it's been getting darker, obviously, in the morning because, you know, we're getting to the fall and we haven't hit daylight savings time, whichever version that is this year um, or this time of year. It's dark in the mornings and that job site is Dude. pitch dark. There's no street lights. There's none of that. It's just the truck lights. And I didn't realize that the reason I was having so much issues this last week or so is because that is so reminiscent of the night a, a deployment. The bases are dark. And the streets on this job site, they're just dirt, which is a lot of our bases were just dirt. It was just trucks, large equipment. You know, I'm wearing helmets. Granted, it's a hard hat, but it's very reminiscent of the feelings, you know. In fact, some morning, this is what kind of keyed me in this morning is is when I went to go out the door, um, I felt too light. And I was like grabbing my chest, like, what am I missing? And and I was like, well, I got everything. And then I walked out the door and was going walking. And I realized what i was looking for my armor my body armor you know and that was what i was missing in my head and i was like oh i'm not there i'm here i'm at work i'm in south carolina you know there's nothing because your job site's in south carolina yeah so i have to walk myself through that and that's normal that's 
nothing yeah. wrong with that. And and that's how you kind of have to deal with it. And I think in any situation that a person who's dealt with trauma needs to do sometimes because things will trigger you and you just don't know why. And when you realize why you can walk yourself through that, or at least yeah. when you realize you're being triggered, you can really, you can walk yourself through where you're at. And, and if you can't on. get a therapist that can teach you how to do that. Yeah. Because you've had therapists that have helped teach you that. And then I, because I've been in years and years of therapy, like I've helped with that too. Oh yeah. That's been one of the things in the last year though, that I've been having to learn how to take a step back from is taking responsibility for the emotional or mental well-being of you and our kid, because Rory is now old enough that he needs to know how to process that for himself. And I was just burnt out. I was so burnt out from taking care of everybody else that I didn't have the energy left over to take care of myself. And it's been a hard dynamic for everybody (laughs) to adjust to. It's definitely been an adjustment, but it's a good one. Because my therapist basically told me, like, stop parenting your husband. (laughs) First of all, you're not his therapist and you're not his mom. And between those two things, like, you need to take a step back and let him, like, figure his shit out. And it's as simple as like, was it, I think it was yesterday that I just texted you and was like, Hey, can you take care of dinner mm-hmm. or what's for dinner or whatever? Can like, you pick something up? Pick something can you, up can for you dinner. do something for dinner? Yeah. Like, because so in, and we grew up in, again, in Mormonism, like, and with the way that we had defined family along traditional roles, even though we were neither of us like super traditional people. No, Sorry. <laughs> neither of us was like super traditional people, but we have defined our family roles along traditional lines because of the military and you were gone and the deployments and things. So I didn't work outside the home, even though that's not maybe innate to who either of us would have been. It was what worked for us. It's what worked for us. And because of that, we fell along these lines of how we defined some of these roles and things. Right. And so then it's something as simple as the fact that, like, why is it my job to figure out what's for dinner every night? Mm-hmm. And that was one thing my therapist pointed out was like, he comes to you and he says, what's for dinner or what are we doing for dinner? And even when you're not in a space to take care of it, he expects you to be the one to tell him, well, why don't you make this or why don't you do that? Instead of the fact that he's a grown ass adult and he can, <laughs> he can figure that shit out the same as you can figure that shit out, you know? And it's hard though, when you have had like 18 years of a pattern mm-hmm. to then stop and say, I don't know, you tell me what's for dinner. <laughs> and it's been tricky in some ways, but I think it's been healthy. I think it's been good. It's, as it is good. Yeah, there's nothing. So it's it's just a, adjusting to a new dynamic is all it is. I think that there are so many times in life when it's time to renegotiate or to, to negotiate or sit down and renegotiate. Like, what are our roles? What are our jobs as far as the house and our roles as far as like, and this is one thing I will say, you've always been really amazing about when we do sit down and have these conversations. You are not the kind of person who's like, I don't do the laundry. I don't do the dishes. I don't do the, like, that's not who you are. And yet when I found us falling in some of these lines, it's still hard because Mm -hmm. of the way we grew up for me to say, Hey, this is no longer working for me. Like it's no longer working for me to be the one responsible for dinner every night because I'm emotionally exhausted. Yep. There has to be give and take. There does have to be give and take. And communication mm-hmm. and to feel safe around the communication, especially when you're dealing with mental health issues yeah. to give yourself permission to be safe with your partner. And here, here's the thing. Again, if you are in a situation where there is gaslighting or abuse or those kinds of things, I am not advocating for you pushing to try to have these conversations. Yeah. That, that is not where we're at. No, We don't have those. And so inside of what we do have, which is a safe and healthy and open relationship, to be able to sit down and say, hey, this isn't working for me. Let's have a conversation. For sure. Is there anything else you want to say today around any of this? No. Nothing that I feel like has to be said. Or that you want to say. Good. I think this is a pretty good place to wrap up then today. Um, 
we appreciate you guys joining us and recognizing that like even though from the outside it looks like maybe everything's perfect there's still a lot of shit that we deal with but the thing that makes it perfect is that we deal with the shit together yes and we don't do it with judgment or like pointing at the other person and say this is your fault or you need to handle this or you need to take care of this we work really hard to say hey here's where i'm at this is what i need just be there for each other show up for each other and i think that's why we've made it 19 years and why we're gonna make it through the next 19 I will say this too. I think our marriage has gotten stronger since we said divorce is on the table. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it has. Like that, because that is not something that you would think um would make a marriage stronger. Is that the end of a marriage could be an option. But I think that when we said, you know what, divorce is back on the table, it's it could happen. Like neither of us we takes, don't want it. So no, and you work harder to make sure you don't get there. And we don't take the relationship for granted. We don't get too comfortable to work to make sure that the other person knows and sees that how much we love and care for them and want them in our lives. Yeah. So anyway, next week is our 19th anniversary. So happy anniversary, babe. Happy anniversary. <laughs> almost like it's like time to get off (laughs) all right well until next time it's a packed life life is packed yeah crunchy crunchy